Welcome to a special season of Napkin Scribbles, a podcast by Arthur and Professor Leonard Sweet. This season, Professor Sweet and Portland Seminary of George Fox University is proud to present Sex in the Sacred. Can faith be sexy? Join Professor Sweet as he scribbles out his formative thoughts on central orthodoxy. This season, the listener and the learner will get an intimate view on how an idea is conceived into a project and then midwifed into a book. We hope you enjoy this special season of Napkin Scribbles. Welcome to this 13-part, or maybe 14, or maybe 15, depending on how many we need, series on a theme called Sex and the Sacred. And it was inspired by a possible translation in Paul's famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the scholars argued that the best way to translate this little line is, love does not act in an unseemly fashion. Love does not act in an unseemly fashion. So everything we ought to do ought to have a seemly fashion to it if we're living out of love. So what does that mean? One sentence by the Spanish philosopher and essayist Ortega y Gasset gives the reason for this series. Why write if this too easy activity of pushing a pen across the paper is not given a certain bullfighting risk and we do not approach dangerous, agile, and two-horned topics? So here we are, trying to understand what Paul means by an unseemly fashion, or a seemly fashion, and at the same time, trying to realize that we have just now uh, entered the, the ring. What splits churches? What determines who is in the pews and who isn't? Is there anything more controversial, more enraging, more um, unruly? than this whole question of both sex and sexuality and politics. And I'm not taking politics on here, but I am taking on this whole question of sex and the sacred and how do we bring them together? And what does it mean that Christianity is, I believe, a sensual orthodoxy? And when you talk about sex and the sacred together and you say a good word about sex, you will be accused of sexualizing the gospel. And that's like if you say a good word about good food and the gospel, you will be accused of gourmandizing the gospel. Uh, I could go on and on. So I, I already know it goes with the territory. Um, but this territory of sex and the sacred is one that, yes, it's full of landmines, but also it's full of treasures. And so... I've decided, okay, let's, let me just put down some thoughts here. Let me just uh, enter some ideas and maybe this will become a book. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll only get as far as these podcasts. Um, I, I admit here, my head is sore from the scratching about why I would take this on. You know, why, why am I doing this? This is not my field. Um, Jesus said very little about sex. So why should I? Of course, when Jesus did say something, that something at first sounds pretty traditional, 
Um, the fact that Jesus didn't pass judgment on a person taking an adultery doesn't mean that he didn't have strong feelings about adultery. He did. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Um, so Jesus had some, he didn't say much about it when he did. He, he sounded pretty conservative, although the whole issue of adultery is taken in the fact that in Jesus' day, only a man could initiate adultery. And and often left the woman and the children impoverished, uh, abandoned on their own. So, so you've got to take the whole context into consideration. But why am I getting this? I mean, I, maybe as I'm looking back after 70 books and a couple thousand published sermons, I've said nothing about this. And so maybe it's a, it's a feeling of guilt or somewhat that I've said I need to say something about a biblical view of sex and the sacred and how they come together. Now, we do this in a culture. We make these comments in a culture that it's hard for us to conceive how this culture perceives us as Christians. We are used to having that name Christian be a good tailwind and talisman. Even, you know, an open says me that can ring some bells and, and cause people to dance. We now live in a culture where Christian carries not a big stick, but a boatload of negative cargo, a heavy burden of damage and, and debt. A decade ago, I began conducting a live interactive tell, I call it a tell, in the middle of my presentations that I thought would be a good shock therapy for those who were present. So in front of everybody, I surprised my VJ, my video jockey, with the request to bring up um, a Google search. And I started with Google, and then uh, Google shut down this specific, these specific questions on their search engine. So we had to go to some other search engines. But to insert the question, and I enumerated and enunciated slowly every word of the question so that both my VJ and the audience could predict the answers that would pop up. And so what I asked my VJ to put in the search bar up on the screen in front of everybody was, why are Christians so, and I said, stop there. Let the search engine fill in the answers based on what everyone is asking. And of course, every day it changes because you've got people searching 24-7. And the first thing that comes up, and always, basically, but it's all 10 of them, is... Um, something that made everybody present immediately kind of upset. They got angry. They got defensive. They got accusatory. Um, it was uh, hard to see how people actually reacted when they were told that the first thing that people think of when they think of Christians is why are Christians so, are you ready? Boring, judgmental, hateful, stupid, mean, unhappy, intolerant, self-righteous. Those are the first ones that popped up. 
boring is almost always the number one. Judgmental is almost always number two or number one. But let me repeat. This is what this culture thinks of you and me. Why are Christians so boring, judgmental, hateful, stupid, mean, unhappy, intolerant, self-righteous? Now, as long as I've been doing this, uh, and that was my, a little kind of epic exercise, and those of you who know what my epic know what I'm talking about here. Um, as long as I've been doing this little epic exercise, um, they some words never came up, and one was sexy. <laughs> now, it's interesting that one group I did this with got so uh, scrappy and unhappy about being misunderstood that they did a campaign to make loving one of the top 10 uh, monikers that would appear to identify what Christians were. And the campaign worked for about a week. And they couldn't keep it up because the negatives were too strong. And I, um, I again, um, tried it and tried it and tried it. And um, even after it came up loving once, I never, never saw it again. And I've never seen the word sexy appear. When I did a search of sexy Christian, just Googled it, the first thing that came up was a picture of actress Megan Good, who gave an award at the 2013 BET Awards. She was wearing a typical awards gown showing lots of skin. And when I say lots of skin, I mean lots, lots. But Megan Good is also known as Mrs. Franklin, wife of Columbia Pictures executive Devon Franklin, who is also a minister. And the person who wrote the blog showcasing Megan Good's dress seemed sincere in asking for help. And his help was, how sexy can a Christian wife be? And it was interesting that no one dared to comment. There were zero comments, which never happens usually in, a, in something that's getting a lot of attention. Everybody's afraid to say anything. Th then I went to a blog. The next one to come up was one entitled Thrashing the Word Sexy Out of Church, where the author contended that a husband could tell his wife that she looked sexy, but that no one else should say that or think that. Uh, these are his words. Uh, Hi, ladies, you're not sexy. You're beautiful and intelligent. Be modest and virtuous, not sexy. And then I got thinking uh, more recently, this just happened a couple of months ago in September of 2020, Candace Cameron Bray was vacationing with her husband of 24 years. And she posted a photo on Instagram of the two of them looking at each other lovingly crossing a bridge. And they stopped for a minute while they embraced, and while they embraced, her husband's hand rested on her breasts. And the Christian world went ballistic. Um, how could this couple who claimed to be Christian not behave Christian? And first, I guess, Cameron took down the picture, and then she said, no, I don't apologize. We've been married for 24 years. Um, this is just, you know... A, husband and wife uh, loving each other and and crossing a bridge together and being playful together and um, and so she put it back up defiantly so which is it can Christians be sexy or is modesty the opposite of sexy 
Or is there a time and a place for all things in moderation, even including moderation? Or, or here's the real zinger, was Jesus ever sexy? There's an old saying that everything in the world is about sex except sex. And I'm going to be suggesting in these podcasts that it has been a mistake for Christians to have let sex be just about sex or to have surrendered the definition of sexy to the world and left Christianity either in the lurch of the lackluster or in the clutches of prunish, prudish demeanor. Everyone is calling right now for a more holistic mind-body-spirit approach to Christian discipleship. But everyone who's calling for this is afraid for that holistic holiness to embrace the body especially the two most powerful hormones God gave our bodies, estrogen and testosterone. If body means mind, then we will dissect the two lobes of the brain in great detail. But the brain is a hidden body part, not a visible one. And Jesus is a holistic manner of life. To live Jesus is to live holistically, mind, body, and spirit. The Jesus lifestyle has a, the Jesus life story, let me put it like that, has a distinctive lifestyle. Jesus has juice. Jesus has Elan. Jesus has panache. The Jesuits have a more refined way of putting it. They call it our way of proceeding. Those are in quotes, our way of proceeding. There is a distinct Jesus way of doing things, a distinct Jesus way of proceeding. Love has a seemly fashion. And the Jesus style that is the inspiration and aspiration of the Jesuit order the Jesuit way of doing things, the Jesuit style, there's a Jesus way of doing things, the Jesus style. And maybe it's time we looked more carefully at the Jesus style. Maybe it's time we rediscover the romance of faith, the love story that is Jesus. And in that love story, the sexiness of faith itself. And I, I confess here, part of my attraction to Christianity after I left it for six years of atheism and Marxism. But I could not escape that of all the religions of the world I looked, to, looked at, Christianity is a sexy religion. The Christian faith boasts a sensual orthodoxy. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here today and came back to faith. Cicero celebrated Socrates for calling philosophy down from the heavens and forcing it to enter the towns and villages, the hearts and hearts, the lives and loves of actual people. Cicero was wrong. It wasn't Socrates who brought philosophy down to earth. It wasn't Socrates who muscled anthropology out of cosmology. It was Jesus, for whom the love of wisdom was found in the love of God. 
The love of wisdom, philosophia, was found in the love of God. Theos, logia, theology. The Inklings, some of you are familiar with that little, little story and that little name. Um, the table was not open to everyone, only those with certain Inklings. And that's where it got its name. First, you had to be a Christian, an intellectual, and an active writer, preferably male, who lived in the Oxford era in the 1930s and 40s. Second, you had to believe in the power of story to change the world and the pivotal role of myth as something that never was but always is. Third, you had to be enamored of the grandness of children's imagination as harbingers of hope. Those were the entrance requirements to meet each week in a home or pub to talk about storylines, plot lines, myth, and hope. The group informally went by the adopted title, The Inklings. It included J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, J.A.W. Bennett, Lord David Cecil, Owen Barfield. These intellectuals wanted to move beyond mere philosophical fiddle, however errant and adroit, and theological faddle, however inerrant and pitch perfect, and enter the Elysian fields of yarn and yore. But when intellectuals gather, philosophy creeps in willy-nilly. Philosophy was not a subject for Plato, Inkling's philosopher Owen Barfield protested to his favorite sparring partner, C.S. Lewis, doing one of their conversations about fantasy literature. And theology was not a subject for Jesus. And that's, unfortunately, what we made it. Theology was the lived way, the live truth, the living life. And so in that sense, Jesus is more than a lifestyle. The Jesus life is style. And the Jesus style is life. Style is the way to be love inside and out. The Jesus style encompasses every aspect of human existence, including and especially economics. And Jesus brought economics and teleology together stylistically. The end of our economic activity is human being, not income betterment. And, and Len Wilson and I are writing a book on this. Just the first one's going to be called The End, and the second one's going to be called The Beginning. Now, one of the theologians to have gotten this right is Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, economics is not about how best to satisfy our desires but how best to civilize ourselves to desire what is good, true, and beautiful. If the fruits of one's labor are not dedicated to making humans grow and flourish and bear fruit, then such behavior is, quote, in bad form. It's unseemly. It's unlovely. If something is in bad form, it does not mean it is wrong or immoral. It means that it is unbecoming to someone becoming a Jesus human. For example, cruelty is wrong. Cheap shots are not wrong, but unbecoming. They're beneath the dignity of any self-respecting Christian. And we've just gone through a year of every, every day you wake up and you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook and just cheap shots being thrown at one another ruthlessly, randomly, cruelly. After checking social media or listening to the news, one wonders if the tide has turned to normalize cruelty and cheap shots 
and abnormalize the giving of others the benefit of the doubt and the refusal to turn clever repartee into cheap snipes. I love a clever, clever repartee, but I hate and despise a cheap snipe. Whatever the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the heiligegeist, the Holy Spirit, is firm. Cruelty in pursuit of the good and just is still cruelty. Cheap shots taken at your enemies are still unseemly and bad form and not the Jesus style. Form is more than function. Form is content. Style is now substance. Style tells who you are and reveals the essence of your character. And the Jesus style is what we'll be talking about in the next podcast, where I suggest that the Jesus style is the epitome of cool. Now, when I say the Jesus style is the essence of cool, cool has nothing to do with being trendy or hip or relevant. That is why so many hipsters aren't hip, why so many cool churches aren't cool. Cool is fitting together, not fitting in. It's living as a one-of-a-kind classic, not a copy or a clone. Cool, for you may be sandals or maybe stilettos, cold shoulder or hot halter, hoodie or helmet, low-rise jeans or overall jeans, boot-cut jeans or skinny leg jeans, capri or Carhartts. Cool is finding your own style, being comfortable in your style, living your style. And we live the Jesus style in our own style. Thank you for joining us on this special season of Napkin Scribbles. To join the conversation, make sure you look us up on Facebook and Twitter at Napkin Scribbles. This week's Napkin Scribble is brought to you by Portland Seminary of George Fox University. For more information, join them on the web at portlandseminary.org. For Arthur and Professor Leonard Sweet, happy scratching and scribbling.